Father, we do praise you this morning and do desire that you would work amongst us many unspoken needs within this group, some known and others unknown, but we know that you know all things and you know everything about us and you know what our needs are. And we just pray that you would draw us to yourself through these needs that we might trust you and look to you and see your mighty hand and your power. And as we look at your word in a passage that a lot of people have a hard time with, that it would be clear and that we would have your perspective on this whole area that this chapter deals with. And we desire to glorify your name because of who you are and to accept every aspect of you because you, in fact, are good, you are reality, and anything apart from that is a distortion. So we commit our time to you and desire that uh, you sense your presence in Jesus' name. Book of Romans. In the book of Romans, we've been stressing the judgment of God. And most people cower and are fearful of the judgment of God, and rightfully so. But I've also been saying that we yearn for justice. We want God to act. What we don't like is that the only way to deal with evil is through God's judgment. And it's fearful and everything that the Bible describes, but yet inwardly we we yearn for it. Now, I have a passage there if you want to read along, if I can read it. I've been reading through the Bible. I don't know if some of you committed to it. I don't know how many of you are still doing it, but I'm in Jeremiah. And a couple of weeks ago, in fact, I was going to mention this last week and I forgot, but it's a good introduction to the passage. What struck me is Jeremiah uses an, an illustration similar to the illustration I gave you. Remember I talked about judgment is kind of like you have a bowl of fruit, and if one of or one or two are starting to decay, you remove them to preserve the others. That's what God is doing in judgment. He is removing that that destroys that that he loves. So all judgments of the Bible is God separating out that that he loves from that that is destroying. So in Jeremiah chapter 24, we have another illustration of fruit, a little bit different from mine, but the same point. The same point is made, so let's just read through the chapter. After Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away captive Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, that's kind of the setting here. This is real history, all right? The Bible always gives you real history. And the officials of Judah with the craftsmen and the smiths from Jerusalem and brought them to Babylon. That's the context. The nation of Israel is destroyed. The nation of Israel no longer exists. And it's in the midst of that destruction that this vision comes to Jeremiah. So really, as far as the nation of Israel is concerned, there's no future, there's no hope. God's judgment has come upon them. But you might say, well, wasn't there anyone amongst the nation that trusted in Yahweh, or did every single one of them go astray? Keep reading. So the next part of the verse, the Lord showed me, behold, two baskets of figs set before the temple of the Lord. So apparently he's in Jerusalem. One basket had very good figs. 
like the first ripe figs, and the other basket had very bad figs, which could not be eaten due to the rottenness. There's the corruption, there's the destruction of sin. Then the Lord said to me, what do you see, Jeremiah? And I said, figs, the good figs, very good, and the bad figs, very bad, which cannot be eaten due to the rottenness. Verse 4, then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, now he's going to get the interpretation. What does it mean? Thus says the Lord God of Israel, like these good figs, so I will regard as good the captives of Judah, whom I have sent out of this place into the land of the Chaldeans. In other words, they are captive in Babylon now. That is part of the judgment on, on the nation of Israel. For I will set my eyes on them for good. In other words, there are righteous people. There are people committed to God. There are people that desire to walk with him and even probably obey the law. So he's going to produce good out of this negative situation. This is Romans 8.28. God works all things for good, and particularly in the midst of judgment. And I will bring them again to this land. He's going to bring them back. There is a future. There is a hope for the nation of Israel. He's going to bring them back, and I will build them up and not overthrow them, and I will plant them and not pluck them out. That's the separating out. He's separating out that that is evil in order to preserve that is good. Now, he's going to preserve them even in Babylon, but they have a future, and that preservation is going to have future effects. And then verse 7, and I will give them a heart to know me. This is new covenant. And Jeremiah emphasizes that. And I am the Lord, and they will be my people, and I will be their God, for they will return to me with their whole heart. This is new covenant. Now, the fulfillment of this is even future from our day. They returned, but they never experienced what's described in verse 7. Still future. And then verse 8, But like the bad figs, which cannot be eaten due to rottenness, indeed, thus says the Lord, so I will abandon Zedekiah, king. In other words, he's an evil king. Judgment upon him. Zedekiah, king of Judah, and his officials, and the remnant of Jerusalem who remain in the land, and the ones who dwell in the land of Egypt, I will make them a terror and an evil for all the kingdoms of the earth as a reproach and a proverb, a taunt and a curse. In all the places I will scatter them. And some of the descendants of the Jews are scattered to this day throughout the world. Some in the United States. And then the last verse, And I will send the sword, the famine, and the pestilence upon them until they are destroyed from the land which I gave to them and their forefathers. There's the judgment. But in the midst of judgment, there's always grace. And in the midst of corruption, there's the opportunity to make a commitment. And here is an example of Jewish people the basket of good fruit that God is going to preserve and ultimately bring about a renewing in the hearts of the people that affects the whole nation. But it's yet future. point I'm making here, that just illustrates what we've been saying all along. Even though we fear the judgment of God, we inwardly desire and sense that. And I gave some other illustrations to illustrate how we desire that there be 
justice. That there's not, we don't want injustice. And this kind of illustrates that, just kind of a, kind of a secular way. Even the unbeliever senses injustice if you don't have equal pay for equal work. So here's another illustration, and you can review some of the other illustrations I gave you. So we desire God deal with inequality. We desire that God deal with things that are unjust. We desire that God correct, and God has promised that he will. We just fear the means by which he does it because it's painful, because we all stand before him guilty, except for the one escape. And that's what the book of Romans is all about. Now, he's in the early part of the book of Romans where he's showing that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All stand before a holy God and are subject to that judgment. And there's only one escape, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. So, we all yearn for justice. We fear it because it's painful. But ultimately, we want it, and ultimately, at the end of world history, God is going to complete that plan of ultimately dealing with evil. And it's going to take all of world history. We're in the midst of it, so we don't see the end of it yet, so we're kind of caught in pain aspect, if you will. So, chapter 2, just a brief overview of it again. We have the predicament of a particular group of people. Remember, he's already condemned all of humanity in chapter 1. In other words, they're under the wrath of God. Now he's going to deal with religious people. And in that time frame, in the first century, the religious people, if you will, or the moral people, were the Jewish people. And I see the beginning of the section dealing with the nation of Israel or Jewish people. They're in a predicament They're no better than the Gentiles from God's perfect justice perspective. So that's verse 1, and we're in the section of verses 2 through 16. He's going to lay out the principles of judgment. In other words, the Jewish people that don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ, in fact, those that have rejected him, need to realize that they are subject to the judgment of God. Remember we said, and we've been saying, they thought themselves as being privileged, and they were. There's lots of passages that indicate that. But that privilege also bring with it responsibility to respond. In other words, they're more responsible because they have greater privilege. They thought the privilege exempted them Judgment is for Gentiles. Judgment are for those that have raised their fists up against God. Not for them. And what Paul is doing is showing them they are not exempt. So he's going to give them the principles. And they would be aware of these because they would know the Old Testament. So all of these come right out of the Old Testament. And we've already seen some of the passages. So he's laying out these principles... And then, in 17 through 29, he's going, to give, he's going to bring it to home and prove that the Jews, in fact, stand under the same judgment as the Gentiles. So that's kind of an overview of the whole chapter. So we're looking down at the bottom of the outline here. All this is on that outline sheet. Principles of God's judgment, chapter 2, verses 2 through 16. We've already seen two of them. The first one is in verse 2. 
God judges on the basis of truth. And I made the point that he judges on the basis of absolute truth. In other words, he sees everything. He's omniscient. He knows everything. And he's not going to be fooled. He's not going to miss something. In other words, he's not going to overlook it. It's going to be according to truth. And he's going to see through all of the excuses that anyone would make, including a Jewish or even a religious mindset. So it's also inescapable. That's verses 3 and 4. We looked at that last week. In other words, no one is exempt, Jew or Gentile. No one can flee. No one can escape. There is no great escape. We looked at that last time. Later on in the book of Romans, he's going to give the only escape, and it's only by the means that God has provided, not by our own efforts. And we're going to kind of emphasize that now. The third principle, it's based on conduct. It's based on conduct. That's verses 5 through 8. And I'm going to try to perform a miracle today. I'm going to try to get through all verses 5 through 8. It's taken us four weeks to get through verse 4, and I'm going to double the number that we've been going through, hopefully. So, God is truth, and God knows all truth, and his judgment is based on it. No errors, no loss of evidence, no distorting of any facts, God judges on the basis of absolute truth. So nothing will escape his notice, and there's no escape from his judgment. That's what we emphasized last week. We get tangled up in the barbed wire. No escape. It's also, we'll see, based on conduct, and there's, I've got three parts on your outline there, your little a and your little b and your little c. In verse 5 is little a, The unbelieving Jew, verse 5, there's going to be, there's accumulating of wrath. In other words, day by day, the more we reject, the more we try to do things our own way, all we're doing is kind of accumulating wrath. It's kind of an accounting term. We'll look at it when we get to the particular word there. But as we always try to do here, When you study the Bible, what you want to first do is read the entire sentence. Sometimes the Bible is not clear to people that try to read it. But just like any book, if you only read a part of a sentence, then uh, you're not going to get the, the full insight that God has in that passage. So look at the whole sentence and then break it down. And unfortunately, in a lot of passages, like the book of Romans, we have sometimes long sentences that go on and on and on, and it makes it harder to understand. But if you break it down and look at the essence of it, in this case, at least a lot of translations, some of the translations will break it down for you, but it appears that from verse 5 through 8... We have one sentence. Now, in a moment, I'm going to give you kind of an alternative. Now, keep in mind, in the original manuscripts, there's not punctuation. So you derive the punctuation based on the grammar contained within whatever series of words that you have. Okay? So you look for a subject and a verb. 
Well, in this case, we have a main clause, and that's what you first look for, and you have a at least at least one subject, at least one verb for that main clause. If it's a compound sentence, you have two main clauses. In this case, we only have one. Does anyone want to try to figure out where the main clause is? Somebody back there had it. Ellen. Very good. You are stirring up breath. Everything has to do in that sentence with that part. And actually, the clause would go, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, comma. That's the whole clause. That's the independent clause. So that means we have a lot of parts that are just telling us something about whoever the you is and uh, telling us something about this storing up of wrath. So that's how you break down sentences. Got it? And it's especially important in difficult ones like this or longer ones like this. So when you have a because, that kind of introduces you to a subordinate clause, right? So there you go. Subject, you, are storing up verb. So everything is going to tell us about something about whoever he's talking to plus the action of the whole sentence, storing up. And in this case, wraths. So that's subject to the verb. And then we have a series of words that introduce us to subordinate clauses. And you can break it down. But, because, but just kind of introduces it to you, kind of connecting it to the last sentence that we looked at in, well, there were a couple of sentences in three and four, but it connects back. So we have, because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart just kind of supports this idea of your storing up. In other words, this is the reason this wrath is being stored up, because of what the subject is doing, because of stubbornness and unrepentantness. If that's a word, I don't even know if that's a word. So, and then once you get past the independent clause, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, comma. So verse 6 continues. Now, an alternative way of taking the passage, you could, and I'll talk about that when we get to verse 6, there are some commentators, in fact, one that I probably respect more than all the others, actually puts a period there, so I'm kind of feeling a little insecure here. (laughs) But I'm going a little bit against that. We'll talk about that. But, and like I said, and, and by the way, this is what the UBS text, the the edited version of all these manuscripts, the Greek text, doesn't put a comma there, but it puts a break there, doesn't put a uh, period there. It puts the period at the end there. Does that make sense? So anyway, so the who introduces us to the subordinate clause. So whatever that is, it's going to tell us something about the storing up of breath. Who will render to each person according to his deeds. In other words, this wrath is going to be according to people's works or deeds. That's why I title the whole thing, Judgment is Based on Deeds, because of this little central passage. And then we have a semicolon, so the sentence doesn't end there, clearly. To those who, now, and you could maybe include to those who, put all that together, introducing another subordinate clause, who by perseverance in doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life, semicolon. So look for these little punctuation marks to kind of guide you. Where does a 
clause begin? Where does it end? So we have to those who by perseverance of doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, comma, eternal life. That's a subordinate clause. Okay? In other words, the D or this rendering or this, you might even call it judgment, rendering to each person. Here's a positive outcome, eternal life. Semicolon, then we have verse 8. But to those, kind of the alternative or the other group, there's two groups of people here. To those who, there you go again, are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, comma, what's going to be rendered to them is wrath and indignation. Does that make sense? See how that breaks down? So now we can look at the parts and look at them carefully with this bigger context. And I think what it's telling us here, in light of the other passages before and the passage after, he's talking about these principles of God's judgment. Make sense? And the essence is that God's judgment is according to deeds. So this wrath that's being stored up is going to be evaluated according to deeds or works. Okay? So let's start at the beginning here, verse 5. But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart. Throughout these chapters, chapter 1, he is describing the unbelieving heart. In this case, he's describing what the unbelieving heart is like. It resists. This is another way of saying what he said in verse 18. And what he's basically doing is showing the religious or moral audience that they are no different than that Gentile audience of chapter 1, or the general audience, the general unbelieving world out there, They are unbelieving, they are unrighteous, they are suppressors of truth. That's verse 18, chapter 1, verse 18. Similarly, he's saying, because of your stubbornness. This is the way that they suppress the truth. They have the truth, they have the privilege of the oracles of God. Remember the passage we looked at last time. But they are resisting what God has revealed to them with a stubborn heart. And they don't want to change. They want to stay the same. They don't want to make the effort to try to make a different direction. Repentance is just going 180 degrees differently. In other words, they're going in this direction. God says, come to me, go in this direction. But they're stubborn. In fact, we can illustrate that. This is a word that's very vivid. You can probably figure out another word that we get our Eng- an English word from this Greek word. Sclerotes, what does that sound like, at least at the beginning of it? And I've got the English in the parentheses there. It only occurs here in all of the New Testament, but there's related words that if you do a word study, you can look at the related words. There's several of them in different parts. In fact, it combines this basic root with other words like a heart. Does that sound any familiar to anyone? No? <laughs> You're close. Clay, let's see, sclerotes, sclerosis. Is that what you said? Okay. Literally, it means hardness. And what is sclerosis of the arteries? Or there's a technical term, hardening of the arteries. So it's kind of a vivid image, the word itself. 
And if you think of hardening of the arteries, what happens when arteries get clogged or even get somewhat restrictive? You're in danger of a heart attack, exactly. And there's other complications that can come as a result as well. When the blood is not flowing, what he's saying is your arteries, your spiritual arteries are clogged. They're clogged up. And you're in danger of collapsing. You're in danger of destruction. You're in danger of a spiritual heart attack because of the stubbornness. And you're storing up what these things that clog up, the spiritual arteries. And when it reaches a certain point, it shuts off the spiritual blood supply and causes collapse. That's the word stubbornness there. Literally means hardness. The technical term there are atherosclerosis. Is that correct? And that's just an image of what it looks like. So project that and think in terms of spiritual blockage, spiritual damage. That's the idea of the word stubbornness. So we have uh, the hardening of arteries, and we have some of the related terms. Somebody look up Hebrews 3.18. This is their condition. This is where they're at spiritually. And who's got three, chapter three? Somebody got it? Bob, somebody look up Matthew 18, 8. It's not the same word, but it's a related word. It has the root in it. Who's got it? Mary Lee? Hebrews 3, 8, Bob. And then I'll have you also read verse 13. It's almost the same word or same uh, sentence. Now, the context... Hebrews is also, interestingly, written to a Jewish audience, predominantly Jewish. And he is relaying another generation years before in the wilderness that was also stubborn, also had hardening of the spiritual arteries. Go ahead and read it, Bob. 3.8, Hebrews 3.8. Do not harden your hearts when they vote as in the day of trial. Okay, he's talking about that wilderness generation, but he's saying, don't be like them. Don't provoke me. In other words, don't bring my wrath down. That whole context, verse 13, very similarly, he's referring to that same generation. You got it? But encourage one another day after day is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened. You won't be hardened. It's a a slightly different word. And verse 8 Hardening of the heart, it's one word. It just attaches that stem to the word heart and makes it one word. So what we have here, who's got Matthew, Mary Lee, 18.8. Okay, where is the word there? I can't remember. Crippled. Yeah, probably. Yeah, that's probably it. So it's this disabling, if you will. It's this uh, hardening And we might say here it's a hardening of like spiritual arteries. In other words, the life, the blood is not flowing because there's deadness, there's blockage, there's blockage. So stubbornness and an unwillingness to do anything to change the condition. Nothing to change the condition, unrepentant heart. That is causing a storing up, a build up of spiritual plaque such that if it's not corrected, it's going to be fatal. You're going to have a spiritual heart attack. You're storing up wrath, 
for yourselves in the day of wrath. And the storing up here is another word that doesn't occur frequently, but it has the idea in Matthew 6, 19 and 20, we won't look that one up, but you're familiar with that one where uh, the word is used, I think, like three times in Matthew 6, 19 through 20. That's the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus encourages us to store up. This is a positive usage. We're encouraged to store up treasures where? Treasures in heaven. So it's the idea, it's an accounting word to store up good things. In other words, good works, if you will. And it'll benefit us not only here, but eternally and in the future. So that's the positive usage. Who wants to look at Second Peter 3, 7? Who's got it? Nope. You guys are a little quiet today. Go ahead. So the, the idea, it's like an accounting thing. It's making deposits over and over. Or in the first century, you didn't have necessarily a bank account where you made a deposit, but you would store up in a place where nobody would uh, know and accumulate wealth. But it's used in uh, Romans in a negative sense, storing up the very opposite. And Second Peter 3, 7 so there is another idea that has this concept of storing something, but in this case, it's judgment. It's fire, similar to what we have in Romans. Mary Lee. Is that like the Sarizo? In fact, we get our word the source from that word, yes. Good observation. Yeah, it's a wealth of words, a an accumulation of words and words that are related or have similar meanings. Very good. Thesarizo, that's exactly where we get the source. The idea of storing something. Now, in this context, it's obviously storing up wrath in the day of wrath and revelation. Now, I think he's looking ahead. Remember? The word wrath in chapter 1 spoke of a revelation of present wrath. Now, if you break it down the way I've broken it down and make it extend over this longer portion, then it probably refers to that future day. And what supports it is this idea of a future time, a very specific future time when God is going to bring judgment again and this would be future from our day as well now if you put a period here the commentators and there's some support for the idea that's why i'm maybe on shaky ground here but anyway they would interpret it in the same way as we have in verse 18 and what we had in chapter one in other words there's a day when people are going to even give an account in this life And what they observe here, and you can observe it yourself, in verse 18, it speaks of an unrighteous condition. You have that in this verse. So they see this as bookends. In literature, that's called an inclusio. And if that is a correct observation, this is the the other end of the bookend. Verse 18 is the beginning of the portion. And... It's possible to break it down so that in verse 6, you have a change and you're going slightly different. And verses 118 through 2.5 is one passage. Now, I'm not totally convinced of that yet, but I'll have to study it further. But you have 
the support for it. You have this unrighteous condition, verse 18, you have it here. In other words, it's a bookend. You also have the idea of revelation in verse 18, revelation of wrath. And you have revelation of wrath here as well. You also have the idea of judgment or wrath. Uh, and in fact, the word wrath, same word as what we have in one uh, eighteen. So it does seem like a bookend. So I just want you to be aware and you can study it on your own and make your choice. And if you go the other way, you're in good company. All right. So anyway, the day of wrath and revelation, the way I've broken it down, we have a new section and he's probably moving more to a future situation. And I think that's supported by some of the other things that we'll look at later on in the same passage. So this would be the Old Testament will be of the Lord. Yes. Yeah. Well, that word often is a, a reference to the Great Tribulation. But it's not always clear from the context. But I think this refers probably, if it's future, to the Great White Throne Judgment. When everything will be completed in terms of God's judgment. The final judgment that is described in Revelation 20, Great White Throne. And there's going to be a revealing there. All secrets revealed, and that's what Revelation indicates as well. So it's a a time of revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Notice the emphasis. Righteous. In other words, there are standards. There are absolutes. God is the standard. He is righteous. And judgment is according to his standard, his nature, And there is an ultimate separation. We yearn for that ultimate separation because we have the escape. We know Jesus Christ. He, well, I've got another chart here later. He bore the penalty so that we would escape, so we would not bear the penalty. And from after that period, we will never experience evil again. We will never be touched by it. God is preserving us through judgment. So it's something that we yearn for. Okay? So that's the first part, the accumulation of wrath, verse 5. And then now he's going to state the principle. This is the principle in verse 6. Verse 6, who will render to each person according to his deeds. In other words, this is the basis. This is the principle that he's developing here. God evaluates based on how we live or what we do or the things that we accomplish. And there's two possibilities There's good and there's evil. There's always the two possibilities. The who there introduces us to this new clause that we already talked about. The alternative approach here by very sound, in fact, Zane Hodges. I follow Zane. We followed him through the book of Hebrews, and uh, I was very dependent on him. He breaks it and puts a period there. So it's got some credibility there. The little problem that I have is the who, because it's a normal relative clause in the Greek text. But a normal relative clause, like has, is the Greek word there, can, in some contexts, be used in the sense of a normal noun. And Zane and others would translate it he, because he starts a new sentence. And that's legitimate. I mean, that you can show that from other usages elsewhere. But if you take it as a normal relative clause, who will, it refers back to God, 
even the he, the pronoun, uh, a regular pronoun, refers back to God, who will render to each person according to his deeds. Okay? Just want to make you aware so that you can choose yourself. So he will render to each person. This word rendering is another accounting word. Paul uses a lot of words from the courtroom, and the courtroom also uses words from accounting, and one of them is here. So it's both a courtroom word, and it's also an accounting word, the idea of rendering. So that word is apodidomai. For those of you that have studied a little bit of Greek, apodidomai has the idea of to pay a debt. So in some context, it's used in a regular sense of just paying off a debt. So when you pay your mortgage by month, some of you have probably paid yours off. Those of you that are still paying, you owe the bank a certain amount every month, and every month you make a payment. You are basically doing what that verb indicates. You're just paying a debt or paying back. Or in other contexts, it's used in a more general way to give what is owed. And it's used of things other than just money as well. In other words, if somebody is owed, in fact, it's used in a, even in a context of a husband and a wife relationship. The husband is to give what is owed to the wife in that context in 1 Corinthians 7. So whatever is owed, it doesn't have to always be money. In fact, the word occurs, I think, 48 times, so it's pretty common. It also is used in, a, in a, some context of receiving a reward. Now, in this context, it's used in a slightly different way with the same basic idea, God paying according to deeds. In other words, what we do is creating a debt, and God is going to pay that debt. You're familiar with the word, the wages of sin is what? In other words, wages, in other words, what is earned or what is deserved of sin is death. And God is paying it. It's like a debt. That's the word render there. So God paying according to deeds. Now this is a common theme. So it's according to his deeds. The his there goes back to the stubborn and unrepentant. Now the reason it's all capitalized, this comes right out of the Old Testament. A Jew would say, oh, okay, that's Psalm 62, I think. 62, what is it? 12. 12. And he would know exactly where it came from. Or this is uh, Proverbs, Proverbs, yeah, Proverbs 24. So it occurs two times. And in fact, this is quoted several times in the New Testament. Well, not several, but a few times in the New Testament. And it's all capitalized. Notice the will rendered to each person according to his deeds. It's all capitalized as it's a quotation out of the Old Testament. Got that? So this is an Old Testament, again, an Old Testament principle. The idea of God judging according to truth, that's an Old Testament concept. The idea of uh, verses 3 through 4 in terms of no escape, lots of verses in the Old Testament. The idea of God judging on the basis of works, Old Testament. So Paul's just laying out these principles that Jews would be aware of. And they're not slipping out from under that. There's no escape for them. Their works are going to be evaluated as well. And he's going to spell that out in the following verses. And we have the idea in other places, like Matthew 16, 27. Somebody got that one? 
quickly. We're running out of time here. Connie, somebody get Revelation 22.12. You got it, Dwayne? Matthew 16.27. Connie's got it. Notice that's future, the coming of the Lord. He's going to come in glory. And what's he going to do? He's going to reward each according to his works. This theme runs throughout the Old Testament, and it's very common in the New Testament as well. Dwayne, Revelation 22. This is the one of the last statements in the New Testament, also referring to the second coming. Dwayne? Behold, to render to every man, kind of the same phrase to what he's done. Judgment is on the basis of deeds. Okay? Now we're going to have the administering of that judgment in verses 7 through 8. Who receives judgment? Well, everyone, because there's no escape. But some receive a different reward. Some get a negative reward and others get a positive reward. To those who by perseverance in doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. Now we have a problem, don't we? Does this passage teach that if you, by perseverance in doing good, you certainly seek honor and glory and immortality, do you get eternal life as a result? Yes or no? It's a trick question. (laughs) Yes or no? No? Any other suggestions? (laughs) Maybe. (laughs) I think yes. And I think the point being, remember, he's, he's not talking about justification yet. He's talking about condemnation, okay? Now, if someone were able to persevere in doing good without slipping up, and we know that we can't do that for all the problems short of the glory of God, right? So everybody's going to slip up. He's going to get to that point. We're going to get to chapter 3 where he's going to talk about there's none righteous. There's none that does good. There's none that does good. And there's none, certainly, that perseveres in doing good. In other words, you've got to have a 100% record. So the point being, if you can do it, try it. If you can jump from uh, Los Angeles to Japan, I'd like to see it. <laughs> That's what I think he's saying here. And seek for glory and honor in it, and if so, then eternal life. All right? What we need to know is God, up in the triangle there, the Trinity, is absolutely righteous. He's the standard. We fall short. None of us make the standard, right? In fact, Isaiah 64, 6 calls our attempt at good works filthy rags. The Hebrew text is more explicit. The Hebrew text is rated R. The Hebrew text is menstrual rags. That's God's view of our attempt to reach him on the basis of our works. So no one makes verse 7. We have a negative righteousness, filthy rags, and there's an infinite distance. In other words, we cannot do any anything positive to reach God's standards. We need something outside of ourselves. You might set a world broad jump record of, I don't know what it is, 20-something feet, but even the greatest jumper is not going to be able to jump from Catalina Island to even the Hawaiian Islands. That kind of illustrates the gap between trying to reach God, and by the way, every religious system is an attempt to reach God on our own good works. 
you fail every time. You're going to end in the Pacific Ocean. You try that jump. If you were to make, if you were able to do it, then you would have eternal. You would have earned eternal life. That's why we need an alternative way. So, kind of the same chart here. What Christ has done, and this is the gospel message. Christ has justified us, and Paul's going to get into this, and we'll talk in detail. There are two aspects to justification. This is going to begin in the middle of chapter 3. He's going to talk about an alternative, because none of us can make it. All of us fall short. There is none righteous, no, not one. There's none that seeks good. We've all gone astray. So you can't make it on the basis of works. What Christ has done is he's taken on himself our negative righteousness. He bore our sin on the cross. So he's erased that unrighteousness. He's forgiven us. That's an aspect of justification. But there's also a plus. God has granted to us or imputed, that's another Bible word, another accounting word, He's imputed his righteousness to us. He's declared us righteous. Now, there's a difference between being declared righteous and being righteous. That's being righteous is chapter 6 through 8. That's living the Christian life. Being declared righteous in that God views us with the same righteousness of Christ, whose perfect righteousness is being declared that. That's the way God views us. So we escape judgment because we have been justified is the legal term, and it's in the Bible. We are justified, or in our culture, we call that acquittal. We've been acquitted. Not because we're innocent, but because somebody else paid the penalty. Make sense? And then in verse 8, but to those who are selfishly ambitious, this is the theme. Now, and everybody else fits into to those because we are suppressors of the truth, we are stubborn, we are unrepentant, and so also are the Jews, to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness. There's the same theme. What do they get? And that means all of us get it. Wrath and indignation. Same word that we have in 18, same word that we have in 5, and now he adds another word. Wrath is kind of that settled anger of God. Thumas is the other Greek word, indignation. That one is used in some passages when it refers to mankind as that emotional aspect of it. And we have both here, kind of that settled dealing with evil and even an emotional aspect. And there's the period, formed a miracle. So judgment is according to works. And all of our works are going to be evaluated as filthy rags. Man's works like filthy rags, so man stands condemned. And if we wanted, to, if you want some verses there, there's none righteous, etc. I already quoted that three ten through twelve, and it's emphasized again that justification is not on the basis of works. Justification is by what faith and faith alone. We receive what Jesus did. For us. That's the only escape. So you can't make it on your own good works. And that's emphasized in Luke 10, 25 through 28. So we stand condemned because we all fall short. Does that make sense? We need grace. 
Salvation by faith. This is what he's going to start talking about beginning in the middle of chapter 3. Salvation by grace or justification by faith apart from works. And you might look at 3.28 where it's stated very clearly. Paul states it very clearly in Galatians. He hasn't gotten there yet. He's still condemning humanity. We're in the context of God showing people that we stand before a holy judge. Now, there's an application. Okay, our works as believers. Now, there's a little application here. Once we become believers, our works are still important. Not for salvation. That's settled. If you're a believer and you've trusted and received God's grace, you have your eternity pretty much pretty much settled. But God is going to give reward above and beyond. Our works as believers will also be judged at what, that's a transliteration of a Greek word, the bema. In other words, we still will be evaluated. So it's important how we live here and now. We get only rewards or there's a possibility of losing something, not salvation, if we're not faithful. Okay? But it's still on the basis of living or conduct, if you will. Does justification? No. Brings us to plus. Brings us to the same righteousness as Christ. So, does anything for the automatic? Forgiveness of sins. Forgiveness of sins brings us to zero. But justification. Yeah, but justification has okay. the two aspects. It gives us the plus. Exact. Good question. This is dealing with a young believer, but I'm drawing a little application here with this little statement. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's dealing with an unbeliever. Okay? Who wants to close for it? Bob. Father, we do it for your word. Hearing it, bless word on hearing your word. Amen. If justification is a lot of one slap. Yep. You don't like we're Adam and you get zero. No, we're plus. We have the righteousness of Jesus Christ imputed to us. Okay, so we don't stop it. Nope. Yep. Yep. Remember Pertzer's next week.